6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, In the Promised Land. Because I had trouble with this. Here's the molten sea, 10 cubits from one brim to the other, and it was round all about, and its height was 5 cubits, and a line, 30 cubits, did compass it round. Let's circumference. In the Hebrew, it's misspelled. The, the Masoretes, when they found a word in the text they were copying that was apparently wrong, they didn't correct it, they marked it. And they put in the margin what apparently was the correct version. The mistake, apparent mistake, or the error, the variant, I'll call it, was called a kathif. And the correct version was called a kiri. And what's interesting when you study this, you also need to understand that Hebrew, like both Hebrew and Greek, are distinctive in that every letter in the alphabet has a numerical value. And that one of the applications of that fact is that they would add up the numbers on a page, and if it didn't add up to the one they were copying, they would burn it and start over. They didn't try to correct it. In other words, they were really very rigorous. The rigor of the scribes is something to be really applauded at. And that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered, in the, had a complete copy of the book of Isaiah, and I think there were four letters different. Over hundreds of years and many copying. Well, if you go through these letters, it turns out that the kathiv, that is the written variation, is a kapf, a vav, and a, and a he. And the way it should be spelled is just with a kapf and a vav. Now, a kapf and a vav would be, the, the, the value for kiri should be 106. But here they've added a he at the end of the word. Now, you can't even tell because it's just a breath. It's like putting the H at the end of a word. Often does you can't tell it's there in pronunciation. But the hay has a value of five. And by the way, the hay is also the breath or spirit, too, by the way. It's, it, but that's a whole other thing we'll get into some other time. So, Kiri should be 106, but the way it's spelled is 111. And when you apply that correction to the text, it says that the circumference is 31.415 and some other things. In other words, we have a circumference of 46 feet that is expressed with an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch. And that's a lot better than we would have gotten if we'd used 22 sevenths as a, an approximation. The precision is, frankly, astonishing. And so a little spelling lesson. I might mention just in passing that there's another place that pi appears in the Bible text. It's one, pi is one of the dimensionless ratios. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, as Genesis 1.1. Take that in the Hebrew, and you take the number of letters times the product of the letters, and divide it by the number of words and, and times the product of the words, you get pi to four decimal places. That's rather bizarre. There's another place in John 1.1. If you do the same thing with John 1.1, you get the value of E, the base of Napierian logarithms, another dimensionless constant in the universe, uh, to four decimal places. But let's move on. So that's pi. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know what you do with that. I just throw it in there to, you know, no extra charge. Okay. Solomon was personally very brilliant, but he lacked moral vigor. Very bright guy, but he lacked commitment. 
He was, of course, excessively self-indulgent. There it goes again. So historically, he ruled at the peak of Israel's prosperity. The Queen of Sheba visited him because she'd heard rumors and couldn't believe it. When she gets there, she found out that the half wasn't told her. Very famous event. The affluence, the commercial success of Israel. The peace, they enjoyed peace. There was no war. They really were, it was at their peak. But it's interesting how Solomon is always, later on historically, always referred to adversely. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these lilies and so forth. It's always used as a measure, but in an adverse sense. It's very strange. Now, there are many parallels people try to draw between the millennial reign and Solomon's reign, but there's also some strange hidden negatives. It's interesting that there were six steps to his throne. It's interesting that his salary was 666 talents a year. In fact, the 666 only appears twice in Scripture. Twice it appears as Solomon's salary, and of course it takes fabled implication from uh, the 18th verse of Revelation 13. But uh, So Solomon really represents zenith of the kingdom. They owned the uh, Mediterranean uh, all the way to the Euphrates, from the Red Sea and Arabia to Lebanon. The tributary states were held in subjection. The Canaanites became peaceable subjects or useful servants, so they were subjected. The immense treasures that were under David were supplemented with excessive, in fact, oppressive taxation. In fact, that's where Rehoboam makes a big mistake. When Solomon dies, he even increases the taxes worse, and that leads to the rebellion. So we have the literature of success. The foundation was in the Torah. We have the history from Moses to Samuel at this point. We have the patriarchal teaching of Job, and we'll get to that in the next session. We have the theology of the Psalms in the next session, and the practical wisdom of the, wisdom of the Proverbs, primarily uh, Solomon's. And then we have the mystical suggestions in the Song of Songs. And so this really sets the stage for the next session we'll be getting into. Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,000 songs. And uh, he also wrote a great deal about natural history. And we'll see glimpses of some of that in the writings that we do look at. But he failed. Because Deuteronomy 17 says that Israel's king should not multiply wealth, horses, or wives. And he did all three. He did all three. He traded in chariots and horses. That's what Megiddo was at one time, was his primary trading base. He indulged many foreign wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Whew. From the very nations that uh, uh, he was warned against trafficking at all in. Of course, obviously, many of these were just uh, political alliances and things. As a result of all of this, it's in his regime that false gods are introduced and false worship. This is where the nation starts downhill because of its carnality, because of its false worship and the rest. So Solomon's self-life had had its full swing. In the end, he was turning away sad and sick of it all. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which most people do not understand, misunderstand it. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes is actually not a pessimistic book. That may surprise you. That's his reputation. Well, we'll wait until next session. We'll take a look at it. But anyway, there's apostasy starts. He, he, he himself falls into apostasy. His excessive taxation, of course, alienates the affections of the people. And that's why Jeroboam had a good opportunity to rebel when the time came. He was led astray by his wives. He had temples built 
to several, to Shemosh, Moloch, and Esterish, the idols of Moab and Ammon and the Sidonians, Sidonians to the north and Moab and Ammon to the east, on the temple grounds. This is an offense. And of course, his adversary stirred up rebellion. And among the tribes, Ephraim in the north becomes one of the primary layers of those that are you know, disenchanted and disaffected. So 1 Kings 11 says, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. And that's exactly what was predicted. That's what happened. Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. Tribe of Judah. So we have the divided kingdom. Rehoboam's folly, of course, is that he, his, his, his advisors told him to raise the taxes even more, and he did, and that was a dumb move. And that was Jeroboam's opportunity. And so he established alternative worship centers up north for idol, idol worship. And that, that, that was a political move, religious of course, but political because he wanted to break Jerusalem's hold on the people. And so we had uh, two uh, golden calves put up, one in Dan in the north and one Bethel in the south. And we know from Second Chronicles uh, that when that happened, the faithful in the north migrated to the south to stay faithful to temple worship. Those in the south that were apostate anyway moved north where it was politically correct. And that's recorded in chapter 11, Second Chronicles. So. So the nation split in two. The northern kingdom under Jeroboam called itself the house of Israel, and the southern kingdom under Rehoboam called it the house of Judah. He says he just had one tribe. That's a little misleading because Benjamin had already been folded in, and so is Simeon. So you've got Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon, and then the Levites join also. So you've got four of the twelve south already. So you begin to notice right away that the ten lost tribe thing is, is naive and not biblical. But in all of this, Elijah shows up. Uh, in the last chapters of 1 Kings. He had a ministry to the northern kingdom. The New Testament speaks of him more than any other prophet. Interesting character. He appears twice in the New Testament. He actually appears at the transfiguration at uh, Matthew 17. He's there. Moses and Elijah are there with Christ and Peter, James, and John. But he also appears, I believe, in Revelation 11. There are two witnesses there, and for reasons I'll cover when we get there, I think he's one of the two witnesses. And it's interesting that Elijah did eight major miracles. He suspended rain for three and a half years. And also there's this big confrontation on Mount Carmel where fire comes down and so forth. And the suspension of rain and the fire are two of the four powers that are associated with the two witnesses. That's one of the reasons I make that identity. And he also is raptured. He's translated into heaven in 2 Kings 2. Interesting guy. But you, have to, you can't talk about him without talking about Queen Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. She was the wife of the king Ahab of Israel. And she is, there are allusions made to her in the New Testament. You need to understand her history to understand what those allusions mean. Her, she becomes synonymous with crafty, cruel, malicious. And I won't make any allusions to people on the political front of that kind, but we'll go on. Naboth's, there's a strange little incident that occurs with Naboth's vineyard, but I believe it's very, very significant because I believe that the, uh, the letter to Thyatira makes allusions to this. Naboth was a little guy who had a little vineyard. And it was not much, but it was his. The king wanted it, and Nahab just refused to sell. 
I mean Naboth uh, just refused to sell. Ahab wanted it, Naboth didn't want to sell. So Queen Jezebel says, hey, let me handle this. Okay. So she has an inquisition, finds some accusers that accuse him falsely, and has him executed. She holds an inquisition to get him killed, and then so the king can have that vineyard. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a period of history that we all know about called the Inquisition? First Kings 21, you can check it out. Well, anyway, um, there's a famous confrontation at Carmel, Mount Carmel, where Elijah confronts the, the queen's 450 prophets. There are also 400 prophets of the grove, so there are actually 150 guys there. And Let's, let's have a contest. You have your place, I have mine, and you set up your, you set up your thing, and let, let, let you call your God to start your fire. Okay, they just, they go for that. They decide to do that. And I'll do the same. We'll see, you can't, let's, see, let's see who wins this one. And they go through their whole routine, all morning, right up to noon, and as they keep cutting themselves and doing all their ceremonial things, nothing happens, of course. And it's really a funny thing to read there, uh, because uh, Elijah's making fun of them. Maybe your God is hard of hearing. Uh, gee, uh, maybe he's relieving himself. Uh, you know, so uh, that's actually what he's saying. It's hidden a little bit in the King James translation. When they're all through, Elijah takes some stones, puts a trench about it, has puts all the wood there. But then, you golfers will understand this. He wants a handicap, so he douses his with water three times and calls God, and the fire comes down, starts it, and obviously proving that God is God. But Elijah seizes the opportunity and slaughters, goes after and slaughters the priests of Baal, Jeze Jezebel's own. That doesn't please Queen Jezebel at all. There's some, so we have a, he challenged Baal to match the altars and sacrifice. He mocked them openly, doused his three times, and then slaughtered the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. And he went through, of course, and made his point. Well, that brings us to, really, 2 Kings, and this interesting guy called Elisha. Elisha has a quality in Hebrew called chutzpah. He not only wanted to be the successor to Elijah, he wanted twice as much of the Spirit. So, <laughs> that's chutzpah. But the second book of Kings is actually the most tragic national record ever written. The first ten chapters are the annals of the northern kingdom, which goes from bad to worse. It, the ministry of Elijah, Elisha is there. It goes all the way to the death of Jehu, uh, Israel's tenth king. And the book actually alternates the annals between the northern and southern kingdoms. You have to watch it. Be careful. Chapters 11 to 17, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea prophesy in these days. We'll talk about them when you get there. It goes all the way to the wipeout. I call it the Assyrian captivity, but the nation is gone from that point on there. Uh, the annals of Judah, the southern kingdom, go from chapters 18 to 25. And that's when Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah prophesy. So we've got a lot of, quite a few prophets there. There's eight of them that prophesy essentially to the southern kingdom. And it ends, of course, with the Babylonian captivity, which is the southern kingdom has only 70 years of captivity. They come back. The uh, northern kingdom does not as that entity, at least. Now, Elisha does receive Elijah's mantle. He wanted to. He, tried, he followed him around. Elijah tried to shake him. He's always there. He says, if my mantle falls on you, you have it. And, he, and when he gets translated, the mantle falls on Elisha. 
He desires a double portion. That's interesting when you study the career of Elisha. Elijah did eight miracles. Elisha has 16 recorded. So he got his double portion. Elijah is very similar to John the Baptist. There's a similar parallel between them. Elisha is a little softer. He does a lot of healing acts. He has gentler words. He brings, he ma- brings life out of death. So there's a, some people make a, compa- you know, a contrast there. But uh, I want to give you one glimpse, because it's meaningful to all of us, of unseen warfare in 2 Kings 6. The king of Syria is warring against the king of Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, meaning Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not in such place, for thither the Syrians are come down. In other words, Elisha uses a prophetic gift to the advantage of the king of Israel. Every time the king of Syria does this. The king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once or twice. In other words, this happens a number of occasions. So much so that we get to verse 11. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, the king of Syria thinks he's got a mole on his staff. Somehow, king of Israel is always tipped off. Whenever he sets a trap, they, they elude it. And he, he thinks it's, there's a leak. There's a security problem here. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O my king. But Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. This is the first recorded occasion of a phone tap. Okay. So the king, obviously the king says, Go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. I was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. Dothan's quite an interesting place. That's where uh, Joseph was sold and so forth. And, but anyway, uh, so there's a little village there. And so the king of Syria goes, and he, the, therefore he sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city round about. So get the picture. In this little village, Elisha and his servant are living, and suddenly the entire Syrian army is surrounding this place. One morning they wake up. And when the servant of the man of God, that's that's Elisha's servant, was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And a servant said unto him, unto Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? He's in panic. Looks out there and, you know, he can hear them revving their engines. I mean, it's, it's close to... He answered, Elisha says, he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I sort of presume that the servant sort of, yeah, 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 but they're, they're, they're there. I mean, he's, you know, that sounds like a textbook answer, doesn't it? Well, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. I almost imagine him being frustrated. This day. Okay, Father, show him. Show him the, let him know. Let, let him in on it, so to speak. Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. This is one of those little glimpses into another dimension. This is a little glimpse that there is power around us we don't see. There is warfare around us we don't see. We need to understand that. Those of you that use a word processor, how many of you use word processor on a computer? You know that when you're writing a letter or something, there's all kinds of things happening you don't want to be bothered with. 
you know, where the margins are, how, where the tab is set, uh, what font it is, whether it's underlined, bold. Normally, you don't care, you just want to get the letter written. But there are times when you want to deal with the formatting a little bit. And so there's usually a key, it's a reveal codes key. If you hit that key, all these things going on behind show up in different colors. The margins and the tabs and the instructions as to what font, to, you know, all those little codes are in there. And sometimes you want to be able to diddle those. See, that's our problem in life. But we need in life sometimes is a reveal codes key. That's what Elisha did. He put the button, pushed the button, so to speak, and, uh, and the servant saw what he normally doesn't see, that, that they're protected by spiritual forces. Daniel 10, of course, deals a great deal with that. We'll get there in later in this review. But, so what are we up against? Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, he says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may able to, be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He says that twice, by the way, in this passage. But he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Oh, that's interesting. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And he's not talking about politics or, or governmental things here. He's talking about these, the, in the Greek, these are ranks of angels. What we wrestle against are spiritual beings that are adverse to us, that are incredibly powerful. The host of Satan. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And you need to go into uh, Ephesians 6 and understand what the armor is and so forth. But anyway, getting back to our history here, the, the northern kingdom had 19 kings reigning 250 years, seven different dynasties. They finally go into the Assyrian captivity in 7021, never to return. The southern kingdom, Judah, had 20 kings reigning about 370 years. In other words, they got an extra century. They didn't learn enough in that extra century. You'd think they would have learned from the plight of the northern kingdom, but they didn't. But they only had one dynasty. The northern kingdom had seven different dynasties. The southern kingdom had one dynasty, the dynasty of David. Bad or worse, they were all Davidic. But they ultimately get put into the Babylonian captivity, but only for 70 years because of God's commitment to David. They do come, that was there for some reasons we'll come to. And if you, if you go through all these kings and so forth, you'll discover that the northern kingdom goes from bad to worse and finally gets wiped out and uh, for 250 years up to 721. And the southern kingdom lasts an extra century roughly and goes into captivity, comes back from the captivity and we'll see that when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth. And we could talk about some, there were some good kings, no good kings in the northern kingdom. There were a handful of pretty, not so bad ones in the, in the southern kingdom. Hezekiah, Josiah being most notable. But David is a standard of measure, and God's faithfulness and preservation uh, all the way through. Uh, death of Azaziah, Joash is preserved from the usurper sword by Jehoshaphat. Again and again, there are plots to wipe out the line, and again and again and again, there's one that's saved. Joash was saved. And Charles Hezekiah under the Assyrian sage, and the blood curse upon Jeconiah was bypassed, and all these things are things we'll talk about later. The object lessons were ignored. You know, it's interesting, Hegel is famous for saying the history of man teaches us that man learns nothing from history. And that's tragically true. With the exception of Hezekiah and Josiah, the downgrade in Judah just continued. Hezekiah was the greatest since David and Solomon. Manasseh just, just was among the wickedness and longest reigning. It was during his reign that the Ark of the Covenant is slipped out of the country to protect it, down to under Pharaoh Necho in Egypt, and that starts a whole other line of the story. But 
The captivity of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem are emphatically ascribed to the sovereign hand of Jehovah, or Yahweh, or however you want to say the name of God. The price of compromise. You know, Reuben and Gad and half tribe Manasseh had settled east of the Jordan. You remember that in the Torah? They were the first to go into captivity in 1 Chronicles 5. Thirteen years later, the other tribes of the northern kingdom are also deported to Assyria. The Assyrians appear to have been the most inventive of torture cruelties. And I won't go through all that, but they really invented torture. They also had a policy of replanting their captives in other areas so they would lose their national identity. The captives may not have been killed, but their identity was, because they would crisscross their captives throughout their entire empire. So there's no return from exile for the entity called Northern Kingdom. So the Ten Lost Tribes is a non-biblical myth that many people are involved with. The Levites emigrate to the south according to Second Chronicles 11. The faithful from all twelve migrate to the south, the scripture tells us. Idol worships, we can infer, migrated to the north. In any case, they were all freed by the Persians in 536 B.C. in any case. All twelve tribes are evident in post-exile records. That's something that most people don't realize. Ezra and Nehemiah deal with all of this. In New Testament, too, we find James and Peter deal with all twelve tribes. So the Chronicles really parallels what we've just said with an emphasis on Judah. The first book of Chronicles talks about the house of Jehovah, and it has Israel's main genealogies, Adam to Jacob, Jacob to David, David to Zedekiah, and the tribal allotments. And it's interesting, the tribe of Dan is missing. Strange. It's there, but not really. It's a very strange passage. There's a whole story about that, but we'll take that at another time. Of course, then the, the last part of it is that David's reign at Jerusalem, where he's anointed the Ark of the Lord, where he brings it, but incorrectly, and he learns that lesson. The covenant of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. These are all issues in Chronicles. The second Chronicles is Solomon's 40 years reign, a recap of all of that, his early establishment, building temple, all his glory. And then the last part, the last two-thirds of it, is the division of the kingdom, the 20 kings of Judah, and the deportation of Babylon, setting the stage for Ezra and Nehemiah. Now next time, next session, we'll take the poetical books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, a whole different kind of survey uh, for our next session. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.